What up? And welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond in studio with co-host Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? My man, we are, uh, we're getting there. We're getting very close. Uh, media days have happened for all 30 teams. I know you were present for the Raptors media day, and you also spent a couple days in Quebec at Raptors training camp. So why don't we kick off there? Tell us what you saw, what you heard, who you talked to, some takeaways that you had from the Raptors' unofficial opening to their championship defense. Yeah, the defending champs definitely opening. Uh, Can we say that one more time? Defending the champs? defending NBA champion, Toronto Raptors. I think our opening uh, camp, the preseason, the season, like very differently than most defending champions would. And I'm actually kind of working on a story along those lines about kind of the mystery around this team and, and how, at least in my lifetime, I don't remember a defending champion coming into a season so unpredictable and such a mystery. You know, you think back to like... Do you think that they are a mystery? Like- I do. I, I do think they're a mystery because, I mean, we talked about them on our high variance episode right and it's just like that alone makes them such a mystery especially as defending champions there's been times in our lifetime you know I think back to the last time Jordan left the Bulls so his second retirement and the Bulls were defending champions but we just like everyone knew they were just going to be trash they lost Jordan they lost Pippen they lost Rodman it's not like oh what a, right. what are they going to be as defending champions like no they're gonna be bad and I think they lost like 60 something games that year um you know there it was a lockout shortened season I think they were Oh, you're right. Yeah, sorry. So they, they were, but they were like they were like, like thirteen were like, and thirty-seven. Right. It was like the equivalent of a sixty-loss yeah. prorated season. So there's been cases like that, but I I don't remember a case where I went into a season with an NBA defending champion, not really knowing what to think. Right, and that's kind of the way I approach the camp. Anyways, you know, I have so many questions, and we've talked about them a lot. Like you know. You, what does Pascal Siakam look like as a number one option when everyone knows he's the number one option in defenses or game planning for him? What does Kyle Lowry look like when he actually knows he probably needs to score more, right? And can't be as indifferent towards scoring. Can Marcus Gasol replicate not what he was three, four years ago, but what he was less than a year ago when he was averaging 16, 17 a game for a Memphis? Like there are all these things that I think I honestly just don't know the answers to. And I went to Quebec seeking some of those answers and asking them. So some of those answers will be in, in a story I put out in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, I just think it's a very really interesting uh, dynamic that the Raptors are coming into the season with. And even, you know, to hear on media day, the defending champions talking about being the underdogs. Again, it's just such a weird thing in the NBA, especially because the NBA is where champions dominate for years. Whether they win it again or not, they're always a factor, right? Like no team just kind of rises in one year and then falls. And yet here are the Raptors after losing Kawhi Leonard and even Danny Green, four months off of winning the freaking NBA championship, talking about the doubters and being underdogs and this and that. And it's just, yeah, it's just a really interesting dynamic, I think. Yeah, I feel like maybe not enough has been made of the Danny Green loss uh, just because it's sort of been overshadowed by the gargantuan loss of Kawhi Leonard. But really, I think he was such an important glue guy for them last season, Danny Green was. And we've talked about this a bit, but I'm not entirely sure how they're going to cobble together 48 minutes at the two spot this coming season, and it might get pretty dicey there for them. And, you know, you talked about the the 98-99 Bulls after MJ retired for the second time. I feel like this Raptors team is a lot more spiritually similar to that 94 yep, Bulls team uh, that was still quite good, made it to the second round, uh, I think lost in seven games, won 55 during the regular season, mm-hmm. still had prime Scottie Pippen, and I, you know, I don't think Pascal Siakam's quite going to be on that level, but I do think that he has another level to get to. And, you know, Whether that happens this season... That's maybe an open question. I feel like we might sort of see a little bit of growing pains from him early in the year when he has to kind of get accustomed to being that number one guy who's being schemed for every night. I think over the course of the year, he's going to get a lot better and a lot more comfortable in that role. And I do expect him to get there eventually. Like I, I still see him as being optimally like a number two guy, but for say you know a mid 40s win team i think he could be an acceptable number one option uh you know provided that the supporting talent is there which it appears to be so let me just ask you you went there you said seeking those answers did you find anything did did you learn anything 
maybe that you that you didn't know before or something that you didn't expect? What did you hear that maybe changed your mind one way or another about what this team is or could be? I I know it's easy for teams to to preach confidence earlier in the year because everyone everyone's confident in October, but I really did leave not that I left believing they're a title contender because I don't think they are, but I I left truly believing that they truly believe that they are still a title contender. There is maybe they're just putting on a really good act, but there is definitely an air of calm confidence. I don't I I was joking around calling it championship zen, but they really are carrying themselves like champions and 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 projecting a confidence like even listening to OG Ananobi speak so matter-of-factly about, you know, repeating. And, and this is a guy that didn't even play in the playoffs because he was coming off the appendectomy. But just, yeah, there really is a level of confidence that, to be honest, I didn't even expect. So things like that. And another thing I'll mention, too, that was interesting and, and one of the things I'll be writing about in this piece is I talk about the mystery of not knowing what they are on the court. Four of their top seven rotation guys are going into contract years. And, like, that just throws a whole nother wrench into this. That's... Kind of, Pretty rare for defending champions, and I, and I talked to a couple of guys about that, and Fred Van Vliet especially was really candid about how that can disrupt a team and why he thinks it won't for this particular um, cast of characters. But yeah, just there just are so many questions with this team. Like I said, it's just very rare for a defending champion in the NBA, especially of all sports, to go into a season with this many questions, good or bad. Like again, I I don't think that means they're going to be bad. I'm on the record saying I think they're actually better than most people think but it's just it's very interesting it's fascinating really yeah I mean the expiring contracts are a big reason maybe the biggest reason this team is a mystery because we don't know what the front office is going to do we don't know whether they're going to be sellers or buyers there has been some talk about a potential Kyle Lowry extension a lot of balls up in the air I guess you could say and as for the confidence of the team I think that's very much to be expected what is media day for if not right. to project in some cases totally unearned confidence i think in the raptors case it's definitely earned given the fact that they won a championship last year and given how well they played without Kawhi in the lineup but um it bears repeating that danny green was also playing right. in those games and, and i think that's a concern one thing i'll add too before we move on i know we've talked a lot of raptors already but you mentioned siakam and kind of being probably a solid number one option on like a mid to high 40s team and probably a good number two option on a real contender as we saw last season behind Kawhi I think it was he made an interesting comment at one point and he he mentioned something along the lines of anything that he doesn't do well right now the only reason he doesn't do it well is just because he hasn't done it enough in games and I think mm-hmm. a lot of guys would see it that way for themselves because everyone's confident in the NBA but with Pascal Siakam you get the sense that that actually might be true you know, the whole, I don't know how many times we repeated it last year, that he only started playing basketball when he's 17. And if you actually look at how rapid his progression has been in basically every facet of the game, once he does start to get comfortable with it, it was something that it was a very simple thing that he said. He didn't, you know, blow my mind, but it also kind of made me think like, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe, maybe now that he is kind of forced into this number one option position and he does have to develop a bit of more of a pull-up game or an in-between game as he talked about a mid-range game ball hand like maybe he's right maybe it is one of those things where like once he starts doing it as he's proven with every other facet of basketball he's just gonna master it and if that's the case then the Raptors might actually have a franchise player on their hands and that's where we get into talking about earned versus unearned confidence and I think he has earned the right to be that confident just given the rate at which he has improved the number of skills that he has added to his arsenal in such a short period of time, he has absolutely earned the right to convince us that he can do pretty much anything. So I'm excited to see what he does this season. But let's talk about some unearned confidence now. I know where we're going now. (laughs) Uh, Some interesting comments from Steve Mills at Nick's Media Day, suggesting that uh, he, of course, you know, said of, of... Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, you'll have to talk to those players about why they made the decision they made, that decision being to sign with Brooklyn and not the Knicks. There were a lot of Max-type players that we could have met with that were interested in coming here. We had a certain way that we wanted to build this team. This is how we chose to build it. Cash, what exactly is Steve Mills talking about here? Is he telling the truth? And if so... 
why would he say this? Why would the Knicks choose not to meet with max type free agents? I mean, there, there's obviously a little bit of room for interpretation there as to what a max type free agent is. But I, this just felt like a classic Knicks self-own to me in the same way that they sort of leaked that they weren't prepared to offer KD a full max. As in, like, they think this makes them look better, but really it makes them look like they have egg on their face. And the Knicks' MO has always sort of been to project this idea that, like, these players need us more than we need them, which is just patently and universally acknowledged to be false. So what's going on here, Cash? So if you zoomed in on uh, Steve Mills talking at Media Day, I think you could actually see the the faint hint of the the puppet strings James Dolan was dangling from the top because Steve Mills flat out sounded like James Dolan's puppet at that media conference. Look, first of all, I don't know why Steve Mills still has a job. He hasn't done anything productive as Nick's executive, whether whatever his role was before, as GM, president, whatever, hasn't done anything productive. All he's done is spew garbage like this when called upon, probably at the request of James Dolan. Now, whether Steve Mills actually believes this or not, I don't know. If he believes it, then he should never be allowed within 100 feet of an NBA front office ever again. And if he doesn't believe it, I don't know. I guess he's just trying to save his ass. Either way, it's astonishing how far up their own ass the Knicks heads are. Like the front office anyway, not the player. To assume that they can actually convince their fans, the media the basketball world at large, that they had the opportunity to meet with quote-unquote max-type free agents. Again, we don't know what they define that as. And perhaps chose not to. And then that the team they ended up putting together is a team that they are happy with. When less than half a year ago, circus ringleader James Dolan was on TV or wherever he was talking about how uh, through the grapevine he's heard they're going to have a real productive uh, free agent season. Like, for him to say that on the record and then a few months later have his president, I don't even remember what Steve Mills' title is, I think it's president, to have his president of the team then saying a few months later, oh, actually, like, it went pretty much how we expected it was going to go and we're happy with the way we went and, like, uh, you know, we could have met with a couple max type guys, but no, like we didn't want to go down that route. Like we, this is what, how we wanted to build the teams. Like, stop. I'm not saying you get to go on TV and say, wow, we really effed up in free agency this year, but like, how stupid do you think we are? And again, if it, the Knicks fans that have been so long suffering and so tortured and so tormented for so long, I, if I was a Knicks fan, if I was a New Yorker, my blood would be boiling watching that, having this buffoon try to tell me that this was the plan all along. What are you smoking and what do you think I'm smoking to believe that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is performative anyway, and I think for the sake of the players who are on the team, this is kind of just what you need to say. But but is it? The, the Knicks, but is it? I mean, maybe not this specifically. Exactly. And again, what is a max type player? Like, I'm sure the Knicks could have had a meeting with Tomas Sadoransky if they really wanted to, but like... And and he he really could have helped this team also. (laughs) So they probably should have taken that meeting. But this is a team that was so embarrassed by what happened in free agency that on the first day of the free agent period, they put out a statement basically trying to reassure their fans that everything was going to be fine. And now they're sort of posturing like this was the plan all along, which if we want to kind of break it down in rational terms, I do think that there's a case to be made for staying lean for 2021. But as the Nets and the Clippers and the Knicks unwittingly showed this summer, you need to have some kind of a proven successful infrastructure in place for those top free agents to consider signing with you. And I just don't see, you know, short of RJ Barrett really taking off, I don't see how this summer of short-term deals for middling players who all play the same position is going to set the Knicks up any better for 2021 than any of the moves they made leading up to this past summer set them up to chase KD and Kyrie. 
I just think it's going to be the same cycle over again. Again, unless like RJ really pops, maybe Julius Randle pops as well. He, like he's a pretty solid player who can maybe raise your floor a little bit, but I guess there's a chance that if if he becomes a little bit better defender and hones his passing and his ball handling a little bit, then he could be part of their future. But it's just looking kind of bleak there. And you get you know you think about getting to 2021 and what is going to be there. What are you going to sell a free agent on? And if you had a chance to get in the room with a max type free agent, I don't care who it is. Like I think that's something you should at least consider. Like having a long-term piece there who can be part of a recruitment pitch to a free agent down the road. Let us not forget that approximately eight to nine months ago, the New York Knicks traded Chris Zapp's freaking Porzingis while he was still technically on his rookie scale contract in order to clear the way for this summer and the free agent bonanza that the NBA was about to experience, came out of that summer with Julius Randle, Bobby Portis, Taj Gibson, I don't even know who else, and then tried to tell their fans in the media that things went according to plan. If that's the case, then your brain-dead ass just admitted on live TV that the plan all along was to get rid of Kristaps Porzingis so that you can bring in players on the level of Julius Randle, Bobby Portis, and Taj Gibson. Congratulations. That's every, that, you just admitted that, you clowns. Also coming out of media day, we found out that Paul George is... Uh, <laughs> we done, we're done with the next I, I, I have nothing more to add. Do you have anything else to add? No, no I, I think brain we covered was it. the end of it. Um, Paul George is going to be out uh, until at least November. And... The when in November he comes back is obviously the big thing here because if he's back in early November, then we're talking about him missing, you know, six, seven, eight games. But if it's mid to late November, we're talking about 10 to potentially 15 games. And either way, I think so long as Kawhi is healthy and in the lineup, they're going to be fine, I think, until PG comes back. But if Kawhi is resting, uh, there isn't a whole lot happening on the wing outside of those two guys. Um, it'll be... Mo Harkless's, or uh, as we affectionately refer to him on this podcast, Mo Harkles, time to shine. What do you make of this, Cash? I mean, it's not good. And I guess it's not all that surprising. The guy had two shoulder surgeries. You know, there, it was never a safe bet that he was going to be ready for opening day or camp or anything like that. But, you know, I mentioned it before. In, in the Western Conference, with how tightly packed things usually tend to be by the end of the season... A couple games here or there might be the difference between a two seed and a five seed. It's the difference between having home court for a couple rounds and not having home court advantage for one round. It could be the difference between playing, I don't know, um, throw a team out there, like a Portland, who I really respect, but it's the difference between maybe playing a Portland in the first round or having to open up against like a legit, legit contender. in the first. Like These things do matter over the course of the season, over the course of a long playoff grind, and so... Do I think this is going to sink the Clippers? No, of course not. We we know Kawhi is good enough if he's in the lineup to keep them afloat. But do I think it could, you know, cause a ripple effect that maybe they won't see the effects of until April or May? Yeah, I do. And I think, again, I think in in this race they're in with the other LA team and with the rest of the West, I don't think there is much of a margin for error here. I guess I just go back to something I said a couple weeks ago, which is that I don't know that there's a particular matchup that they really have to worry about like this team is close to matchup proof in my mind when they're at full strength I think if anything if the Clippers are kind of languishing near the bottom of the playoff bracket the teams at the top are going to be elbowing each other out of the way to avoid that first round matchup I don't think the Clippers are the team that's really going to have to worry about who they play I think there are probably some teams that they would rather play in the early rounds of the playoffs than others but I just don't think it's really a big enough deal for them to worry about it. I think that, you know, the bigger issue is obviously how healthy is Paul George? How does he play when he comes back? And, are, you know, are he and Kawhi going to be operating at the peak of their powers come spring? Again, though, and, and when I talk about, like, the the effects on the their playoff bracket, I don't mean it as in, in the sense of, well, they're going to get upset in the first round because of this, but... I just mean it in in the long grind of the playoffs. I do think things add up. And if you have to play, say, maybe an extra game or two in Utah or in Denver in the first round and have to scrap through a six or seven game series in the first round as opposed to 
saving some of your bullets for the second or third round, I do think that'll add up if you know, you've know you got LeBron waiting for you yeah. maybe in the West Finals or whatever the case may be. And the one thing I'll say is that as much as I believe in this team's defensive ceiling, you take PG out of the equation, and I think at that end of the floor they might be pretty vulnerable because you know we saw last year Kawhi's regular season defense was, by his standards, pretty subpar, I think. Obviously his standards being incredibly lofty, but even so, he was... He was a pretty good regular season defender last year, not exceptional by any means. Uh, you know, you have Pat Beverly there, but then you also have a, a pretty shaky front court defense, you know, between Harrell and Zubach, Lou Williams in the backcourt. Uh, like, until PG gets back, they might get scored on a lot. And I guess if there was one area of concern and me thinking that they might actually struggle to the point that they're I don't know 500 in the games that PG misses then it would be at the defensive end of the floor that I'd be most concerned yeah and the concerning thing for me too is that the way he said it he called it November ish Mm -hmm. you know that like you said that could be early November that could be late November that's the difference between maybe missing six games like if he comes back the first game of November he would have missed six games if he comes back the last week of November he's missing almost a quarter of the season believe it or not so that is a huge difference we and we just don't know yeah um one last thing I want to ask you about uh, preseason tidbit is this James Harden one-legged step back that had Twitter up in arms or up in something, up in legs, yeah. when he busted it out in that preseason game against Shanghai. I, I guess my big question about it is, is this a move that has real utility or is this just James Harden continuing to try and create a signature move for himself. Like, is there a benefit to shooting these step backs off of one leg? I mean, I don't think so. We were just talking about this half hour ago before we came on the air. About wait, And you mentioned that. Like, maybe it's just him trying to, like, establish a signature move. Well, how many signature moves do you want? Because you've kind of made the step back your signature move, and kudos to you. You've perfected it, probably unlike any basketball player in the history of Earth has done. The Eurostep, which was a Manu Ginobili specialty and a bunch of other guys, Dwayne Wade comes to mind, the guys that mastered it. You came along and probably took it to another level. That's your move. You mentioned the rip-through as something James Harden is kind of mad. Like, all these things are James Harden's signature moves, and people will remember those moves as James Harden, especially like the younger guy, the younger generation now that maybe didn't watch Manu's prime or older guys. How many signature moves do you need, and what is the point of this one like I, I'm serious like, you're laughing right now and I get it it is funny but I, I genuinely asked the question like I wish the Rockets were coming to town so I could genuinely <laughs> ask James Harden in a very respectable way yeah what are you hoping to achieve when you step back and shoot a three off one like like this isn't Dirk perfecting a one-legged fadeaway because the release point and the arc makes it so that it's basically unguardable and unblockable this just seems completely unnecessary like what what is the point of this i mean it's not even aesthetically pleasing it looks kind of ugly yeah we don't know whether he's actually going to use this during regular season games or how frequently and if and when he does and i guess depending on what kind of percentage he's shooting on these one-legged step backs maybe we can revisit this conversation i guess for now it might just be something he's trying out it might be a gimmick i can sort of see some utility realistically does allow you to create a bit more separation and maybe get that shot off quicker. But like getting that shot off has not been an issue for Harden, right? (laughs) Like he's already creating so much separation with that sidestep move. And I I don't know. I I just, I'm not sure there's a benefit to landing and shooting off of one leg, (laughs) you know, as if he's basically shooting a runner from 28 feet away, but I'll play wait and see, I guess. I mean, you talked about all those other moves that Harden has sort of perfected and made his own. You know, the the step back, the Euro step, the rip through. Those are all really useful moves to have in your back pocket. But I feel like those are all a lot more natural basketball moves. (laughs) Like, it's not weird that he mastered the step back, the rip through, or the Euro step. Yeah, I guess someone's just going to have to, like, one-up him. And... You know, like maybe Zion's signature move is like he does a cartwheel before before he shoots a jumper. He, I, if anyone's going to try to one up him with like a stupid shot, it'll be Russell Westbrook. It'll be his teammate. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm like a, a mildly curious about whether he's actually breaking these out when the games start to matter. And 
maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe there is, you know, an inherent usefulness uh, in just being able to get that shot off of one leg. And I, I guess it may get, makes it like slightly harder to contest. But I think you're sort of blowing your margins there on how much harder presumably it is to balance and get that shot to go down when you're not shooting off at two feet. The only utility I can find potentially in this move is late shot clock. Seems like you've got no space. You're fading to the corner and this is your only option. I I could actually see some utility in it, but that also concerns me because James Harden is the type of guy that I feel like would have the ball with like six seconds left and not need to use this and hold it for an extra four seconds just so he has to use it. And like... Again, it, the way we're talking, it sounds like we're talking about a scrub. We're actually talking about one of the most prolific offensive players in basketball history. So no knocks on him. But, yeah, I don't know. I guess just prove us wrong. Like I, yeah, I'm ready to eat my words. Right, I mean, when, yeah. when they unveil that statue in front of Toyota Center and it's of James Harden releasing a high-arcing three-pointer off of one leg, I will make that pilgrimage and pay my respects. But um, it's not just that it's a one-legged three. Like It's the fact that it's a sideway. It's like a step side. It's not even a step back. It's a step side, one-legged, off-balance three. I know what it is. <laughs> you know what <laughs> I've I mean? It's, it. not, it's not just like, oh, he's shooting a three off one leg. That's weird. No, yeah. he's making it extremely difficult for himself in a lot of ways, not just the fact that it's off one leg. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Next week, we're going to have a show where we talk about the eight teams that we think are legit championship contenders this season. So I thought this would be a good opportunity uh, in advance of that episode to talk about the non-contending teams that we are most fascinated by and most looking forward to watching this season. Because... I think the regular season is all about the collective. And I'm not one of these people who says the playoffs are all that matters. I love the regular season. I love watching mediocre but slightly interesting teams. I like to take in games from you know pretty much every NBA market. And I, I think there's something interesting to be found in, in basically every team's regular season except maybe the Hornets this season. So let's talk about some teams that are going to be really interesting, even if they don't have championship upside. Uh, I'll start with you, Cash. What, uh, what's one team you really want to talk about here? The Portland Trailblazers. And the reason I want to talk about them, I don't, I don't actually find them all that interesting, but the reason I want to talk about them is, as you know, in, tr- in coming up with these eight <laughs> legit contenders, uh-huh. I really wanted to include Portland and just make it nine. I didn't think we needed to go eight or ten or whatever. And, and I feel it's, it's somewhat of a disservice to them to Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, especially to not have them as one of these legit contenders in this season of parity. Because you look at it like the four years post-Aldridge, when it's been the Damian-CJ show, this team has averaged 47 wins. The last two years, they've averaged 51 wins. Their best player is pretty much an MVP candidate, or at least on that cusp of being one. Their second best player is a borderline all-star. They're well-coached. They've been Pretty balanced on both fans. They've been surprisingly solid defensively. I know they're missing Nurkic. I'm really interested to see what they make of Hassan Whiteside because I know Miami is a great culture place, but for whatever reason, he just didn't jive with Eric Spolstra and and he never really fit there. Portland's also a really great culture place, and it starts with Damian Lillard. And if they can if they can just convince Hassan Whiteside to stay in his lane a little bit and and do what he does best and not navigate too far out of that, I do think he can be really useful for them, especially while they wait for Yusuf Nurkic to get back. And if they do get Nurkic back and he's anywhere close to what he was last season defensively, again, I just I look at this team's track record, I look at their the talent at the top, I look at how wide open this title chase is, and I say, if we're not going to put this team in the like legit contender space this year, we're never going to, and I feel like they've earned the right to be there. So for that reason... Let's talk about them. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, you just talked about them a bunch, and I agree with everything you said. Like, I think they're going, they are 
a competent team personified. Like this team is well coached. They know who they are. Uh, their core players have played together for a while. And like you said, there's a great culture there. There's buy-in. Players trust each other. Players tend to get the most out of their abilities. But I do think, you know, for however many seasons in a row, like there's been a kind of cap. And the the issue to me this year is like they just, like they don't have any fours. So how are we going to make this Kevin Love trade happen? Like that's, if they found a way to get him or, I don't know, name another four that they might be able to get, like Paul Millsap, potentially. Danilo Gallinari. Gallinari. Very interesting possibility. Like, if they can get a guy like that, then I think they become really interesting. And obviously, they have to do that, you know, without sacrificing CJ or Nurkic even. Like, I don't... I'm trying to think of a way that they can get this done, right? Like, they love Anthony Simons, it seems, so I don't know if they're going to include him in, in that kind of a trade package. I think maybe Bazemore's salary is the ballast that you would use, but even that is not enough to get, like, a Kevin Love. You'd need, you need to add, like, Rodney Hood's salary, and then you're talking about bumping that back to December, right? I don't know. They, I guess there are ways that they could put a package together. Uh, I'm trying to think. Like they, they have draft picks to use, I suppose, so they wouldn't have to throw uh, Simons into that deal. Maybe a team like Scary Trent Jr. But if they can find a way to make to make a deal like that to to get a Gallo or Kevin Love or a Millsap, I would love on this roster. I don't like the idea of Zach Collins at the four. I just he is a five to me. Uh, I think that is his optimal position at both ends of the floor. Though I do think he can play the four defensively. Um, because he really does move his feet quite well. He's quite athletic. I, I would prefer to have him playing the five full-time, and it seems like they're going to have to shoehorn him into that power forward role, and I just think like uh, the offensive upside, if they manage to get like a Gallo or a Kevin Love, would be enough that I might be willing to put them at the fringes, say, of the title conversation. Yeah, see, and I guess that's where we disagree. I think they're already on the fringes of the title conversation. In any other year, I do not think this roster would be on the fringes of that conversation. But I think this year, when there is no runaway favorite, a team that's in the low 50s and wins with an MVP candidate and a secondary star, to me, they would need a couple bounces to go their way. You know, maybe another team get find some bad injury luck, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. But I do think they're right there on that fringe. Here's my big question. You look around the West and at the teams that they're presumably going to be playing for most of the season and then in a playoff series. And you look at some of the perimeter talent that they're going to be going up against and like the big power wings like LeBron, Paul George, Kawhi, you know, even James Harden. Who's guarding those guys? Yeah, probably not. Like they, they don't. They're not, they're not built to be a strong defensive team. Yeah. Um, again, I think it would take some, some bad – like I think it would take, you know, the two LA teams knocking each other out before Portland sees one of them and then some injury luck. But I, th- I think talent-wise, they are right there. They're on the cu- like the fringe. They're not one of our eight, and I agree with that. But I do think there's kind of like a gap between, if you go from those eight to Portland, I think there's then a gap between Portland and the rest of the non-contenders. I see them as being closer, I think, to the Spurs. Wow. Then, really? well, I don't know. The Spurs are confusing to me because... Murray is a big swing guy, I think, to the point that, you know, if he really explodes, then then the Spurs actually have something. And that's going to be a team, I think, to be reckoned with. And if he doesn't, then they'll basically be what they were last season, which is a nice, fringy playoff team that doesn't really have any hope of advancing. So, which maybe it's, maybe I shouldn't put the Blazers in that category because I think the Blazers have enough to win a series depending on their first round matchup. I don't know if, if I give them a chance to advance really to the conference finals this year without uh, making an in-season trade. Um, and not that, I mean, we're talking about their defensive prospects. It's not like getting Kevin Love or Gallo or somebody like that would really help them in that regard. So maybe the kind of player they should be targeting is more of like a defensive 3-4, like a Robert Covington type. But I don't know. I guess there's a lot of different directions that they Covington might be able to go. real good on that team. Yeah. Uh, so... This, to me, is like a, a prime in-season trade team. And I guess we'll play wait and see on that front. But in the meantime, 
I mean, we're waiting for Nurkic to get back and to see what he looks like when he comes back because that he was the guy. I know they went to the conference finals without him last year. The bracket broke right for them and allowed them to do that. Uh, I mean, they played outstanding basketball in the playoffs, and Ennis Cantor played some of the best basketball of his career in the playoffs, so I'm taking nothing away from them. But Nurkic was the guy, I think, who changed their outlook and really raised their ceiling last year with the level that he took his game to. And if he comes back in something resembling that form, then once again, you know, I'll have a lot more faith in their prospects. But I guess if we're talking about interesting teams, the Blazers are just, even though, like, they overhauled their roster this year after, you know, so you could call them accusations, I guess, of standing pat and getting stagnant with the same core. They swapped out a lot of guys, a lot of long-tenured players, and really now it's just Dame and CJ, and I guess you could throw Nurkic into that mix of guys who have been there for a while. Um, there still is this feeling of sameness about this team, and maybe it's because the backcourt's the same and the coach is the same, but I guess it's just hard for me to get super excited about them for that reason. Yeah, no, I understand that. So, so hit me with an interesting team. A uh, team we haven't talked about that much is the Kings. Okay. This, to me was one of the most fun teams in the league to watch last season, and I think they'll be that again. They'll play incredibly fast, shoot a lot of threes. Um, they have exciting young talent. I think De'Aaron Fox is a guy who not only do I love to watch him, but I really have high hopes for what he can be this year. Uh, I'm talking like all-star level hopes. On both sides of the ball. Yeah. And I think the defense, he has maybe a longer way to go. Like the extent to which he refined his offensive game last year was frankly pretty jarring. He made an incredible leap from year one to year two. In any other year, and he would have been the runaway MIP. 100%. And even last year, like I made the case pretty much throughout last season that he should have won that award, and I sort of changed my vote at the end of the year because he tailed off a bit while Siakam came on really strong. But he absolutely had a case to have won that award. And like Siakam, I think he has another jump in him. Uh, just because I think there's still so much unharnessed raw ability there. And the way that he reads the game has already come so far. But like we said, I think defensively, uh, he still has a lot of room for improvement. And I don't know, I guess this team's interesting in a couple of ways. One, because I think they'll be fun and exciting and pretty decent. And two, because I'm just, their offseason was kind of weird to me. And I, I, I like that they're trying to get better and that they didn't just sort of rest on their laurels and be like, you know, we'll rely on internal improvement to take a 39 win team and keep going up to a mid forties win team. And we'll go from there. Like they really tried to add and make this team better. I just don't entirely know why they signed the guys that they signed for as much as they signed them for. And Harrison Barnes, especially, I just didn't really get that contract. Um, and generally, just like trying to back up an out-of-nowhere season where pretty much everything goes right is really tricky territory. And in adding these guys in the offseason, I do think the Kings got better, but they've also created a lot of positional bottleneck where they've set up Bagley to play more four than five, and they've set up Barnes to play more three than four, and I don't think that's necessarily optimal for either guy. And where does Harry Giles fit in? And what's Ariza doing here exactly? Are Fox, Heald, and Bogdanovich all going to play together? And is that remotely viable defensively? Um, there's a lot of question marks. But if they continue to get better, I think it'll be really fun. If they continue to get better, they're a playoff team in a stacked Western Conference, which is crazy to think. Like mm-hmm. This is, what, a 14-year playoff drought now? It's the longest playoff drought, I believe, in NBA history. Like, yeah. it, it, it's long. There was a Warriors drought that might have been longer. I think the Kings either tied it last season or surpassed it. Yeah. And anyway, it's, it's been a long yeah, ass time. <laughs> it's been a long time. And last year, they really did provide genuine reason for optimism for the future. And I'm not really that down on their offseason other than the Harrison Barnes contract. I feel like that was one of those contracts like we traded for this guy midseason to be part of this future. We're not really sure if he fits, but we can't just let him walk after we dealt for him when we're like a small market team. So guess we got to pay him. And I just, but they could have, like, they gave up Justin no, no. Jackson to get agreed. Him, they is, could have, and they yeah. probably should have. But I'm saying that's probably the way they were thinking of it, even though they didn't give up much for him. Yeah, I guess they just saw it as like, well, we're small market team. We dealt for this guy. What are we going to do now? Let him walk? Well, yes, you could have, mm-hmm. and you should have, but you didn't. Harrison Barnes to me is just like a very, 
I don't think he's bad. I just don't necessarily think he's all that good. Like, I don't think he moves the needle much. And I don't think he fits in with the ethos he, of this team. He doesn't. Team, you know what I mean? Like, he's a guy who, he's a bit of a black hole. Right. And he tends to slow things down and sort of do his own thing, like, outside of the framework of, of this team's offensive system. And maybe he'll bail them out of some possessions late in the clock because he does have some isolation scoring ability and he can post up and do some things with the ball but like on the whole like like you say I don't think he's moving the needle especially if he's playing the three like as a small ball four I think at least he opens up the floor and if he's more of a spot up guy than he is an on ball guy then there's some utility there but I think in the role that he's going to be playing with this team I just don't know what the upside is yeah and with as ball dominant as I think to Aaron Fox um, should be mm-hmm. in this offense and with development from Bagley even Giles I think the perfect small ball fours for a team like this are guys like Bogdan Bogdanovich and Nemanja Belica, you know what I mean, who are already on this team. Yeah. So even as a small ball four, like I don't think you need a $25 million small ball four in Harrison Barnes, right? That to me was the misstep. But even the vets, like Trevor Ariza on what is essentially a one-year deal because the second year is non-guaranteed. I think that's actually a solid pickup. Like not every free agent move can be a big splash. And I think for a team like the Kings, Trevor Ariza... I, by all accounts, is a really solid locker room guy, a good vet for young guys, still a you know a decent 3 and D player, even at this stage of his career. If he can go in there and be that guy while giving them like 12 minutes a night, like I think that's fine, even though you paid 12 mil for one year. I, I really do think that's fine. Corey Joseph, it's a really cliche thing, but kind of like proven winner. Like everywhere he goes, he's usually in a, on a playoff team. He's got some experience. I think he'll be good for some of the young guys, even though he's not that old himself. He's kind of like a young vet. Dwayne Dedman. You know, I, I, I like the Deadman pickup, maybe more than any of the other Right, ones. Dwayne Deadman's like a solid pickup, like a really underrated player, kind of on both ends of the court as well. Like, I don't think they made any kind of move that really moved the needle in terms of their long-term ceiling, but I think they made solid veteran additions to a young team that is on the cusp of being a playoff team, and I don't think it'll hurt if some minutes go to Trevor Reza, Dwayne Deadman, and Corey Joseph in March and April if this team's in the thick of the playoff race. Again, my only issue was the misstep with giving Harrison Barnes money they did not need to give. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, I think the Kojo contract was pretty bad, even though he's going to help them. Um, but that doesn't really matter as far as what they're going to do this coming season, so it's not necessarily worth talking about. I think the only situation in which that does come into play is that the team feels like, oh, we've invested all this money in this player and we have to play them... X number of minutes to basically justify the cost. And we've talked about that with the Nets and the investment they made in DeAndre Jordan and how that might come back to bite them. So that's the only thing that would concern me. But I don't think that's a concern with Corey Joseph, who's just a true professional. And both he and Deadman and Ariza are, are going to help this team's defense. And this team was actually, I think, overachieved at the defensive end of the floor last season. And we're still, um, like, they were in the lower half of the league. And I, and I think that was with, like, getting a little bit lucky with opponent three-point shooting their half-court offense needs to be better obviously they ran a ton to avoid having to play half-court offense as often as they possibly could um but ultimately they need to be better in the half-court and I think Deadman's going to help open up the floor for them there feels like a season where we're going to learn a lot about uh you know Buddy Heald and Marvin Bagley and these guys who had big breakouts last season and Bagley I guess I don't know if you call it a breakout he was a rookie but second half of the season he was far better than he was in the first half of the season and there's always a concern when something like that happens whether you're just like beating up on teams that have already sort of thrown in the towel and whether that's going to sustain itself and especially given the kind of log jam in the front court with Bagley I think he is going to have to round out his game in order for him to justify getting you know 30 plus minutes a game this season and we'll see if that happens Bogdanovich had a fantastic world cup so we'll see if he can carry that over I think there's a lot to like about this team. I also think because the front office and ownership with this team has proven to be very trigger happy and a little bit impulsive, this feels to me kind of like a crossroads season where if things go backwards rather than going forwards, even if there are positive indicators, then there's a, a chance that we might see some kind of structural changes that interrupt the progress this team has made. And I guess, you know, as far as just like selling optimism, both to the front office and to the fans, it's important to me that we see 
strides from a lot of these young players this season. And, you know, you talk about Heald, like he's eligible for an extension now. Uh, he's going to be a restricted free agent next summer when the free agent class, as we've talked about, is just completely barren. Uh, if Buddy Heald does a... He, all he has to do is replicate last season. He's getting a max contract. You think so, huh? Yeah, I do. I mean... Honestly, he pl- like there's not a lot going on at that position around the league. That's right? what I'm saying. And going into neck like the 2020 free agent class is a wasteland. Yeah, you got a guy in his early to mid 20s who <laughs> I, I think he's uh, oh I think true he's like yeah 27 20 he I think he's 26 now or 27. Yeah, there was that whole issue where he ended up two he came years out, he older. He came out as a 27 year old, right? Yeah, when, when everyone thought he was 25. All right, so late 20s, 26 year old, but yeah. still in the middle of his prime. And he's coming off a year where he was a tw- an inefficient 20-point-per-game scorer. If he goes back-to-back years as a 20-point-per-game scorer with some efficiency and you know proving to be one of the elite shooters in the league who can create for himself on a team in the, cut, like, in the West playoff race in a year when there's not really any other options out there, like to me, that's, that's a guy getting max money. And that's when I think you'll start to be like, wow, they really messed up by giving Harrison Barnes that <laughs> yeah. money. Uh, and yeah, I agree with that too. And then you have Fox who's going to be extension eligible after this season too. And if he has a season that I kind of expect him to have, they're going to have to max him out. You can take well, so. Harrison Barnes off this team right now, not replace him with anyone. And I don't think there is any difference. Like, I, I 100% I don't agree. Think, I don't think that makes him better, but I don't think it makes them worse. Like I, I just think... It's like empty calories, not because he's bad, just because he doesn't move the needle either way. Just right. take him off this team. They've got <laughs> a lot more space going forward, and they're not any worse. Healed, by the way, shot 43% on eight three-point attempts per game last season. Yeah, he he emerged as an elite offensive player last season. Um, so this will be a fun and interesting team to watch, and I'm really curious to see what they look like. Uh, who else you got? Okay, I'm going to go in a completely different direction because I think the Kings are this like up-tempo, fun, young team. And I'm going to just a team I think is going to be grimy and no team is going to want to play on any night. And that's the Miami Heat. Okay. And I think this is the perfect landing spot for Jimmy Butler. You know, I've talked about how he's the perfect star for the, the organization Pat Riley runs and that Eric Spolster coaches, but it's also perfect for him. Like, he's going to a team where it, it's, like I said, it's just grimy, man. You go in, uh, James Johnson, we don't even know if he's going to be starting the season because he's not in shape right now. But once they get James Johnson back, you've got Goran Dragic taking his usual cheap shots at the point of attack. You've got James Johnson ready to judo kick someone in the head. Uh, Justice Winslow, not a guy you want to go up against if you're an offensive player. Bam out of bio. Even Derek Jones, a like Kelly Olynyk, kind of a tougher uh, player like th- they're just this team that I'm interested to watch because I actually think they could be pretty good mm-hmm. in the East. I think they can be in the mid 40s and challenge for home court in the first round. Jimmy Butler, say what you will about him and how he breaks players like Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins. I don't think he'll have those issues here because I think the Heat are a very tough minded team and a tough minded organization. I think it's this very perfect situation, a perfect marriage of superstar and franchise. And I'm just excited to watch them, not because I think they're going to be aesthetically pleasing, but because I think they're just genuinely going to beat teams down. And there's going to be a lot of those nights where it's a random Tuesday night in January and Team A just isn't up for it because that happens over the course of the NBA season. And the Heat are going to be up for it because they've got Jimmy Butler and Eric Spolster coaching them and all these other kind of gnarly guys. And and the Heat are going to punish a lot of teams for that. And I'm just interesting to, interested to watch that dynamic unfold. Yeah, they're going to be super physical for sure. And Spose teams are always plus defensive teams. I'm curious to see who is the lead playmaker and the lead ball handler on this team. Oh, they're going to win games 82-79. It's going to uh, be ugly. Well, I don't know. I mean, so do, do they kind of continue on with this Justice Winslow at point guard experiment? Or is that just sort of a a thing that was born of necessity and now they can scrap it because he in that role was far better than I ever would have expected him to be. Uh, like he showed some ball skills that I just hadn't really seen from him in the past and actually handled those duties with a plum. So do they continue to put the ball in his hands or is it back to Dragic running point or is it the Jimmy show? And is he working as a de facto point guard and, is Dragic just 
a little bit too broken down to handle those responsibilities now on a full-time basis because I mean you look at it like there there's a lot of playmaking on this team yeah, from a is. lot of different positions if you have Dragic out there like you have it from him and and you have it from Winslow and you have it from Butler and you have it from James Johnson and even Bam can make some plays so I think despite the fact that they're aside from Jimmy isn't like one dynamic off the dribble creator you can maybe cobble together enough just by virtue of having everybody on the floor be able to make that next play and put it on the ground and drive or make a pass and you have sort of this egalitarian flow offense where everybody's reading and reacting and you cobble together enough scoring to complement what I expect to be a top 10 defense and there you there you go you know you have home court advantage in the first round yep and then you go into a playoff series with Jimmy Butler who always gives you a chance especially in the east yeah can you think of other than I, I guess maybe the Clippers when they hit their stride and you got Patrick Beverly out there and Paul George and Kawhi can you think of a team other than maybe the Clippers that would just physically wear you down this season as much as this Heat roster? I don't. I don't Philly. think I can. Yeah, because they're here's the thing. I think Philly's big. They're huge, yeah. and they will physically wear you down. But I don't know if they're as mean as this Miami. And I think yeah. that does matter. Mm-hmm. I don't think it matters in terms of whether you're going to win a title or not. But I think it does matter in the like grind of an 82 game season, right? Like, I don't know if Philly's got size, but I don't know if they've got as many guys that like genuinely might want to hurt you as Miami. <laughs> I'm serious. Um, like Miami's going to be an intimidating point. team to play. Absolutely. And they, they always have been, you know, with pretty much any personnel group over the last few years, they've always been a drag to play against because they are so physical. You mentioned Dragic and just the sort of subtle things that he gets away with. Olenek. The, yeah, Olenek. Absolutely. And, and, some stuff that we shouldn't glorify either because the no. Linux made some dirty plays. No, and that's the thing. That I'm not glorifying know. it. I'm just yeah. genuinely saying these dudes, they're going to make you feel them. Yeah, absolutely. And you're um, not going to want to play them. For sure. I don't know if they'll be a fun watch. Like these sort of muck it up, slow it down, grimy teams are sometimes a bit of a drag. But if you want to tune in on a sort of random night and see a team just competing, I think this will be one that at least gives maximum effort, I think, on a night-to-night basis. And again, could be pretty good. And we talked about Bam on the last episode, so we don't need to go over it again, but I think he has big breakout potential. Yep, agreed. I am very interested to watch the Pelicans. And again, this is a team we've talked about a bunch, so we maybe don't have to take as long talking about them, but Zion is the obvious one. Just seeing what he looks like as a rookie, is he going to be more of an on-ball or an off-ball guy? Um, because we sort of talked about how there are so many guys on this Pelicans team and maybe not enough shooting around them who who are going to be more effective with the ball in their hands. So to me, Zion is going to handle the ball in transition a lot. That just makes intuitive sense. Uh, But what's he doing in the half court? Like he could conceivably be handling and you have defenders sagging off of him and then they do basically exactly what Philly has done when guys sagged off MB the last few years, run JJ Redick off a dribble handoff, and presumably Zion's going to be a cinder block when it comes to setting screens. So you have ways that you can kind of scheme around that in the half court. You know, I also want to know how effective he can be as a dive man, whether he has any semblance of a jump shot, and just basically how they use him and how the talent around him complements his abilities. Yeah, and I think just beyond Zion, like, Lonzo, you know, his development remains interesting. A lot of those Lakers guys, like Brandon Ingram, I'm not a big believer in Brandon Ingram, but a lot of smart basketball people seem to be, right? Like, uh-huh. what does he look like in a new situation? Drew Holiday, still an elite two-way point guard. Like, is he almost rejuvenated by a New Orleans team and a franchise that is very much rejuvenated, right, in, in terms of off-the-court stuff? So they're just a really interesting team in general, And then from like a strictly on-court perspective, like you talk about high-variance teams, this is a team that very easily could find themselves in the playoff mix. There is enough talent there, especially if Zion pops right away, to be really good, really fast. And then there's just so much young talent there that you just have no clue what to make of it. I don't know how they're going to find minutes for all these guys. This team is deep. Yeah, with NBA talent. Yeah, and I, like, you just look at the backcourt. Like, you got to find minutes for all of Holiday, Ball, Redick, Etwan Moore, Josh Hart, 
Nikhil Alexander-Walker, and even Frank Jackson, who for parts of the last season looked really good. Yeah, spoiler alert, you're not finding time for all those guys. So one thing I wonder, I guess, is do they consolidate some of those players and maybe make an in-season trade? I know we've talked about the potential of them being a Bradley Beal destination. As much as any team, I think they have the pieces to actually get that deal done. Again, that's contingent on Ingram, I think, and Lonzo to to a different extent showing that they can be the players that many expected them to be when they went second overall. I, like you, am a bit of a Brandon Ingram skeptic. I, I think I'm more of a Lonzo skeptic also than you are. And I'm not sure they're being put in a situation where they're going to be able to showcase their abilities this season. But maybe there's just enough perceived upside there that they could be really valuable trade chips. But I... I'm not sure how they're going to find minutes for all these guys. I'm not sure if there's enough shooting. Etwan Moore, frankly, is going to be a really important player for that very reason. And the issue with Redick, like he, they're really going to rely on him as a release valve to sort of space the floor. And similar to what happened with Philly, it gets problematic because he is a defensive liability and that limits how often he can be on the floor and often limits his ability to close games. And then you have to figure out where he fits into that really crowded backcourt. So I have questions about that. I think their defense could be really good. Derek Favors, you know. I was going to say, this team got Derek Favors. Yeah. Favors, by the way, if you look at uh, like opponent field goal percentage at the rim, he was number one in the NBA last year. And he's always near the top of that leaderboard. And I think it's going to be more difficult for him. And there's going to be a lot more pressure on him if he's playing the five full time. Uh, because he's going to be the guy who's contesting shots at the rim far more often than he's been the last few years when when Gobert's been behind him. So we'll see if he can basically hold up in that role. But I, I think that's definitely the optimal position for him offensively, especially given the dearth of spacing already on this team. So I think they have like top 10 defense potential, just, just given all the talent between Drew and Lonzo and Favors. But it's just you know, are they going to need to compromise that in order to get more shooting on the floor, I guess, would be a big question I have. Man, if if Zion is really good right away, and you go into a season with Zion, Drew, J.J. Redick, and Derek Favors as, like, your kind of big four, not even knowing or assuming anything of Lonzo Ingram and those guys, like, man, that that's a really good NBA team. Do you know it, what I mean? Like that, Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I think... If Zion's good, this team is a playoff team. But I guess the being good part, I think we just need to contextualize it. You know what I mean? Because we've gone down the list and talked about all these players and talked about how deep this team is. These are all quality NBA players. Like, they're all good. But are they all good together? And that's the big question that I have. And, and this, to me, looks like another team that's going to have to run a lot. And, and they will. And they will, because this is an Alvin Gentry coach team like they will run I think they're going to struggle in the half court so the more they can get out in transition uh the better yeah and I agree with what you're saying you know in in terms of questioning whether all these good players are good together but again to me that's more like a question for guys like Lonzo and Hart and Ingram and Mm -hmm. that big four I talked about to me the only question there is how good is Zion right away because if he's good I don't really have a question of how Drew and Redick and Favors can fit in around like that big four, I think, can carry them enough. I agree. And I think there are enough pieces that they can mix mm-hmm. and match with that they'll stumble on a formula to get. Right. Like, I think they will be, at worst, you know, like a 38-win team provided solid health. And that's a, a really nice baseline to have for a team that just lost Anthony Davis. It is, yeah, it is remarkable how high this team's floor is given the fact that they lost a transcendent superstar – for in terms of immediate talent, we don't know what these Lakers guys are going to provide. They lost a transcendent superstar in a small market, and yet we're talking about them having a 38-win floor. Yeah. That's, That's pretty, pretty remarkable. Pretty amazing turnaround. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do one more. Who else you got? It's a team I think we both had on this list. It's the Memphis Grizzlies, who we have not talked a lot about this offseason. I think they're going to be pretty bad from a win-loss perspective, but... I really like what the Grizzlies are sneakily building here. And I think they can be an immediate league pass favorite if Ja Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. and even Brandon Clark have the kind of chemistry I think they can. Ja Morant, if you didn't watch this guy play in, university, like in college, 
he is just electric. You know, the, people have made the Westbrook comparisons. I don't want to go there because I think he can have his own game. But he is electric to watch no matter who you compare him to, if you compare him to anybody. He gets up and down the floor as fast as anyone probably in the NBA right now. He is, you know, usually when you talk about those really electric rim-to-rim point guards, you don't necessarily think of them as the best playmakers in terms of how they read the game. But Jamarant's a really good playmaker. He reads the game very well for his age. And his lob playmaking especially can be electric. And, and he was doing that at an explosive rate in college with guys nowhere near as good as the ones he's about to play with. Him and Jaron Jackson can form a very special two-man game very quickly. And so I'm excited to watch how that kind of plays out. And Brandon Clark, I had done a profile of him before the draft. I think he's a really interesting player that did not get selected high enough for what his, I think, ceiling is. So yeah, I just think the Grizzlies are, they're, they're not going to be good. I don't think they're challenging for a playoff spot, but I think they can really tease the potential of a bright future this year. And I don't think enough people are talking about them. Yeah, I think it's cool how they, just how quickly they transitioned from one foundational 1-5 battery to another. And I know they're going to experiment with Jaron Jackson at the four a lot, and maybe they're not totally sold on him being a full-time five yet, but... A point guard and a big man essentially forming the backbone of this team. They immediately transition from Conley Gasol to Morant and Jackson. And it's a completely different stylistic pairing. A lot more, I think, speed and athleticism. They won't be quite as methodical. They won't be quite as judicious. They're going to turn the ball over a lot more. And I just... The prospect of watching just a completely different iteration of the Grizzlies than we've seen over the past decade is really fun to me. They're probably going to be really up-tempo. They're going to run. They're going to switch, I think, a lot more than what we're used to. Clark, you mentioned, I think has a great motor. And, you know, it's like no expectations, uh, no real chance at the playoffs, just a bunch of exciting young guys that I'm looking forward to watching play and learn and grow and fail. Like they're yeah. going to fail a lot. Uh, that's just, that's part of the process. And it's interesting to watch the ways in which they fail and how they learn from those failures. And what I really am going to be closely monitoring is just like how much better do they get over the course of the season? Cause I, I think there's actually a lot of defensive upside with mm-hmm. this team. The collective length of this team is pretty crazy between uh, Jaron Jackson, Kyle Anderson, Bruno, Tyus Jones, uh, DeAnthony Melton, even Josh Jackson. Like, that's a, a lot of guys with a lot of length and athleticism. Did they and release Josh Jackson? Did they? Or no, maybe they just assigned him to the G League or something. Oh. What? Potentially scratch that. <laughs> but I think offensively it's going to be rough. Like, we talked about how they're going to be up-tempo and they'll maybe be more fun to watch than they've been in the past. It might be like a league pass, darling. I think there's a chance for that to be a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing because I'm looking at this roster and it's like, I'm pretty sure Jonas Valanciunas is going to be the number one offensive option on yeah. this team. Jonas Valanciunas might average 20 and 10 this year. Oh, he averaged 20 and 10 after yeah, coming over in the right. trade last year. But he so. might like that just might be a season average. For sure. Year. Yeah. So uh, Josh Jackson started not released, but he's going to start the year. They've already announced he's starting the year in the G League. Like he's not starting the year in the NBA. Hopefully that'll be good for him. Yeah. I mean, if he's open to it and right. and wants to really attack that assignment, then that could be a really good thing. Yeah, because that guy needs to grow on and off the court. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, the, the Grizzlies, like when I think of them as a league pass darling, it's not even just because of themselves. It's what they're going to create for the opponent because between the pace they, I think they're going to play at, the turnovers I think they're going to commit, the youth, uh, their own explosive potential, like this team has highlight factory written all over them on both ends of the court like they're gonna give up some highlights and some fast breaks but they're gonna throw some down too so if you want to tune in as like a neutral fan and see some highlights made watch the Grizzlies this season I think the only downside is that they have a vested interest in being bad because of that top six protected pick that they're desperately gonna want to hold on to so we might see some not so subtle tanking at the end of close games where, you know, similar to like the, the Mavericks a couple of years ago when Rick Carlisle would just have some really bizarre substitution patterns at the end of close games and it led to them underperforming their point differential by like eight games. Uh, that might happen with the Grizzlies this year as they make a concerted effort to keep that pick. 
Yeah, unfortunately for them, Luka Doncic uh, not available yeah. in the 2020 <laughs> NBA draft. Anyway, we are going to cap it there. Thanks for tuning in once again. And like I said, we're going to be back next week to talk about this year's championship contenders. In the meantime, uh, you can read mine and Cash's season preview content on the Score app. Uh, we will talk to you all next week. Thank you.